Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. So we haven't had an episode for a couple of weeks, but I am excited to be back with a Wetlands episode. You know, those are my favorite. So today's storyteller is Dr. Courtney Robichaux. Courtney is a wetland scientist who has primarily researched the plant Phragmites australis, which is a super tall, colony-forming, invasive freshwater plant species. And when I say it's tall, it's regularly 10 to 15 feet tall. And Phragmites, which we usually down here call Frag or Roso as shorthand, is very good at invading locations and outcompeting native species, which is what I mean by invasive. And it forms these dense colonies, which also don't really allow for a diverse suite of species to grow in the same area. And that's what I mean by outcompeting. I was so excited to talk to Courtney because I spent a solid portion of my wetland scientist career working in Frag. And it was fun to nerd out and talk about the fieldwork and logistics, especially when you're dealing with a plant that is so tall and gets so dense and is just really all around a uh, struggle, a challenge maybe, to work in. But the biggest thing I really want to talk to Courtney about is what do we do when an invasive species such as frag is taking over but is also simultaneously holding the wetland together? Like, what do you do? How do you manage that scenario? Or do you even manage it at all? It's partially a philosophical question and partly a feasibility question. So we discussed that at length as well, comparing Ontario where Courtney works versus the Mississippi River Delta where I work. And this is just something that I find really interesting because it's, I don't know how many thousands of miles apart, but it's similar problems on different scales, but it's still just, it's really interesting and it's just something I like to contemplate and talk over. So it was great of Courtney to play ball with me in that. And of course, we also talk about Courtney's research and why she was even in the frag in the first place and what they were trying to figure out um, where she was working in Long Point, Ontario. So this was a really great conversation. I'm always so excited about a wetlands episode, and so y'all enjoy. I am so excited to talk to you about Phragmites. Are you? Excellent. <laughs> I, I am. Uh, so I kind of just want to jump in. I'm that excited. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so the reason I'm excited is because Louisiana, you know, straight south of you somewhere, has lots of Phragmites australis and we mm -hmm. usually just call it frag or rose cane or something oh um, yeah we call it frag up here <laughs> yeah and so it's such a challenge and it's like one of those weird species that's like it's not native but also it's kind of holding our coast together and so yeah. it's like this very complicated thing so and nobody here that I know of studies it directly so I'm excited <laughs> cool yeah and I have um I mean like all of my work has been in freshwater coastal wetlands in Canada so it's a little bit different but I think runs into a lot of the same problems tell me more about like your experience with frag oh okay I like this um uh, so my primary experience with frag is in freshwater marshes and often trying to get an airboat through a stand of frag <laughs> which doesn't really go very well <laughs> and so you know, you'll get the airboat going. You have to basically just floor it to get to wherever plot we're going because there's no walking through it. And so um, we call it roso diving when you get the boat stuck and you all get a big PVC pipe and you jump up and flatten it around the boat. It's a, okay. it's a mess and it's destructive. Uh, I don't know. I, it's, I have a lot of mixed feelings about like whether that's even useful or whether we should be doing it or, 
you know, we know it's 99% frag in there and like maybe some Spartina Patens and some Vignaluteal Levines. Like that's really nothing else in there. <laughs> or if yeah. there's very, very small amount. Yes, okay. so that's my primary experience, but that's because airboats are the primary means of transportation in coastal Louisiana for us. So that was one of my questions was like, how do you get into frag? How, how does that work in Canada? Like, do you have airboats? Do you walk? Like, just legit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I was thinking too, we should probably explain a little bit more about what frag minis is. Yes. For folks who don't know, because frag, you just talking about it is like, moving through frag is such a visceral experience that yeah. it's hard to like convey over like just audio but it's I always describe it as like it's kind of like bamboo and it grows like in the coastal marshes that I'm working in okay so I work uh, around Lake Erie so they're all like freshwater coastal marshes primarily in Lock Point which is just like on the north shore of Lake Erie like on the Canadian side so it's that little if you ever look at the map that long peninsula that sticks out that's where I did most of my work and um Long Point is, it's really like a really beautiful marshes, like marsh complexes and like uh, really beautiful ecosystems there. It's a UNESCO World Biosphere Reserve actually, and like an important bird area. It's totally gorgeous. And since the late 1990s, Frag has been like spreading there. So it got introduced, like it was most likely the like non-native like haplotype, genotype um, subspecies, I guess the, was introduced there in the late 1990s and then kind of the water levels dropped, which probably facilitated its spread. And it's just, it just started spreading exponentially like throughout there. And then when I started working in Long Point was about 2014. So after it had been spreading for like about 15 years, kind of unchecked. And I think my experience is very similar to yours, which is like I'd go into the marsh and we have, there'd be some resident vegetation communities, which different species than uh, what you're talking about but same vibe and um and then it just be walls of frag and walls of frag that you have to walk through and it's just like for folks who haven't been in it it's like three meters tall like kind of bamboo like hard it's so tall it's so thick to walk through it's such a struggle <laughs> um I truly just like kind of interrupt me so we can have a conversation about it, but I have so much, I've done so much field work in Frag and I have so many stories for you about just walking through Frag. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the wetlands out here, like the coastal, I guess just to like set the scene a little more, like the, the wetlands I worked in because they're, um, they're on the edge of a bay. So they have like a really gentle sort of like topology and you have from like, um, where the soil is just like saturated, it's not as wet. We have like meadow marsh and like um, communities, which are, it's like a lot of sedges and grasses and like really diverse like forbs. And then it's sort of like gently, as things get deeper and wetter, it turns into like a kind of cattail marsh, like bulrushes. And then you have like the kind of open water wetlands, like all your submerged aquatic veg. Um, so you have that really nice like gradient in these wetlands, or you should. And then Frag just takes over all of it. Yeah, is and this similar here? Um the wetlands here are a bit more patchy and maybe not as stable either. We have a lot of like floating marshes and mm. cattails, mm -hmm. very organic. And it just like not, there's not really a surface. It's more of just like this organic blob of layer on the top that the typha is growing in. And then it's just abyss under it. Yes. I've worked in a couple, like a couple of the other marshes I work in are like that as well. And they also have such a frag problem and yeah. Um, yeah. 
So do you want to hear the story the first time I went into Frag? Yes, absolutely. I do. <laughs> okay. So I, um, okay. As an undergrad, like I didn't know what grad school was. I had no idea about anything. So I started working on this project because I was like, oh, um, I did a little bit of work with wetlands, like as an honors thesis. And then uh, Rebecca Rooney, who became my supervisor, she worked on wetlands. And I reached out to her and I was like, as like like I had just finished undergrad and I was like do you have any like contract work you know when you're trying to like and she was like yeah I actually have this position that we're going to look at how um this kind of long-term invasion of frag is affecting bird communities because and this became my master's work and luckily someone had in the early stages of invasion looked at like the bird communities that were using the uninvaded habitat and then compared it to the frag so I got to go out 15 years later and do the exact same thing so we went out to these sites and like, you know, how when you're just sort of starting out, you like don't want to say that you don't know how to do things. Like you're just like, yeah, totally. I can do this. Yeah. So we went, <laughs> yeah, we went out to Long Point and we kind of like went up to like a boat launch and they handed me a GPS with points from that survey that was done 15 years before. And they're like, okay, so this one is like about a hundred meters from here. Do you want to just like navigate us to the site? And it was me and a couple of people from like the group we were working with. And I was like, yeah, totally. And, like, I don't even think I'd worked with a GPS like that before. Like I didn't know to zoom in well enough, like just actually see where I was going. And I just walked into a wall of frag and like let us walk around on the edge of a bay for like 20 minutes just in like, you can't like, when you're in there it's like a jungle like you can't see anything right yeah. I, I walked past like a carcass of a turkey like a wild turkey it was truly just like me pretending it was fine <laughs> like, I have so many stories like that as well I'm like uh I don't know what I'm doing but I don't want them to know what I don't know what I'm doing right? so I'm gonna figure it out on the fly <laughs> like we're just gonna go and we eventually got there yeah and that was like yeah kind of my whole first field season was a lot of that Honestly, even if you do know where you're going, it all looks the same and you can easily lose a person five feet from you, you know? Oh my so. God, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so you're asking how we get around and it's usually on foot. Like okay. all of my field work would be on foot, which um, the first couple of times when you're trying to, usually we would like set up our sites in like April. So the first time you're trying to get to like sites or like doing scouting for sites is just the worst because you're just like crashing through frag. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely nothing. But then once we found sites, you could, the nice thing about frag is because it's so like recalcitrant, like it doesn't go anywhere, is when you crash a path, you can just follow that path for the rest of the season. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For sure. That, and that's one of the things I was telling you about at the beginning. Like we take an airboat because that's, that's the means of communication. And there really isn't, it's not really solid enough to walk and also yeah. alligators. And so, um, yeah. yeah, I always think about folks who do wetland work where there's alligators I'm like that's so terrifying yeah just get used to it it's not not terrifying (laughs) most of the time it's fine I mean most of the time also they're not like you know they're on edges of the waterways they're not usually like deep in the marsh because why would they go all the way back there you know that'd be a lot of work for them to do that um so usually that's not really an issue but like in the floating marsh areas like they could just be under the float float on mat and yeah you wouldn't know it until they start making noise or pop up and I've had that happen a couple of times but have you yeah where we like me and my coworker one time in one of these floton marshes um it was all typha cattail and not very stable but we were only like five feet from the boat from the airboat 
and um, we're standing there. We were doing our vegetation survey plot and we heard this alligator just like start to growl, like, right. It felt like it was right under us and we just dropped everything and bailed into the boat. And we're like, yeah. where is it? <laughs> um, and I mean, it, it could have not been very big, but you couldn't see it. You know, it's like one of those things, like, I have no idea, like, how oh. big it was how close it really was and so we left everything like we're gonna have to go back and get all of our equipment <laughs> like, yeah you don't want to risk it on like oh it might be a small alligator <laughs> right so we uh we got everything we took the boat to you know because we we're trying not to take the boat too close to the plots but yeah yeah you know at that point well we're just taking the boat to, we're not getting off the boat the rest of this plot site <laughs> so. yeah that's fair yeah, so it's it's something you're just like consciously aware of all the time, but like usually isn't an issue. Okay, well yeah. that's that's good. Yeah, um, yeah, we've had a couple times, um, like because we're walking, like it's a lot of time in like waist deep, like you know how the water is, like you can't see anything. Mm-hmm. And I had one time like out at a plot, and I think it was a carp, like a very large fish slammed into my leg like underwater and it freaked me out so badly and I just think about that and I'm like I'm in a wetland where nothing is going to actively kill me like and I still was like I can't handle it still so surprising though you know uh, yeah like you're out there for hundreds of hours and nothing slams into your leg and then one time it does you're just like oh god I'm just a meat suit out here hoping for the best <laughs> oh my god yes same coworker. I was in the field one time and a similar thing happened, but I was crawling across the floating marsh and I was in a forested area. So there weren't any alligators back there. 95% sure there weren't any alligators back there. <laughs> um, and I was crawling and then like, you know, I'm on like literally on my hands and knees and my left leg like sunk. And I was like, looking at my leg, like that was weird. And my coworker was like, what just happened? And I was like, I was sitting on something. And it like, I think it was, we think later it was a fish, some kind of big fish. And it like, I kneeled on it and then it swam past her and hit her on the way out. It was like, okay, we're, that was the last pause. Like, I think we're done for the day. Yeah. Yeah, We've, I haven't, you know, I I feel lucky that I haven't had to do a ton of work in floating mats. I've had to do some. And um, there was one where we were, we couldn't get to, so we do use a boat sometimes, but we just use like a, uh, like a really cool go devil motor mm-hmm. so it's not an airboat but have you used go devil we motors have one before? yeah we have one different different yeah. brand but same kind of and yeah we call those mud boats because they're like shallow yeah. water it's basically a lawnmower engine with a prop on it <laughs> yeah and they're like actually amazing for just getting yeah. to like the shallowest water like they're yes. so cool so that's usually what we use when we're using a boat um and then like but often we can't get the boat like through Frag, right? So it's like you'd get up like through the channels as best you can. And then you have to hop out and mm-hmm. walk through a bunch of Frag to get to the sites. And um, we did some work in a different marsh, Rondo Provincial Park, just a little bit further down Long Point. Or sorry, down Lake Erie, coast of Lake Erie. And a lot of those are floating mats. And there was one year we couldn't get to one of the sites because like the channel had closed in. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing like all of this walking around based on like kind of like Google maps, like satellites to see how we can get to the site. And it was so much walking through these like floating mats of cattail that were just sort of like, you know, when you can feel that they're very loosely held together and you're just like stomping down the typhus so you have somewhere to step and like yes. praying. It was just that. And there was one point where like my foot did sink through like down to my hip and I was just like the feeling of open water beneath you when you do that is so unsettling <laughs> it's like, yes 
I 100% yeah. know that feeling. You're like, there's nothing down there. Like, truly, there's nothing. Yeah. And yeah. I 100% know that feeling. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So, good field work. Yeah. Yeah. So, tell me about, um, did you, okay. So, tell me about your master's work. And then, did you also do Fragmites work for your PhD as well? I did. Um, I'll, here, I'll talk you're... at you and tell you the story. Yes, please do. Please do. Okay. Um, so I did, I actually did my undergrad, my master's and my PhD at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. Um, I did my undergrad honors thesis was on some peatland restoration. And that was like my first exposure to really working in wetlands, which I really liked. It was just, um, it was like in a small township, someone had accidentally like paved over or like they had filled in a peatland and they were like restoring it so that was my first time working with wetlands and I was like oh I really like this and then I had graduated and I didn't really know what I wanted to do next in my career I was at the time really into Muay Thai like fighting and I thought that maybe I would that's where I would go with my life um, but I also was like oh I really like wetlands and I really like restoration and um, to be clear I was like running a gym. I wasn't like a good fighter. Like I wasn't going to be like a pro fighter, just, just to clarify. Um, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea that I was like. Um, So I reached out to Rebecca, who was like a new faculty at the time. She was doing uh, wetland research, which was pretty new to like the biology department at the time, didn't have anyone doing something like that. So I reached out and asked if she had like a short-term contract and she did. She was starting up her research program. I was really interested she had actually worked in Alberta for a long time and just recently came back to Ontario for this program. And she noticed that Frank Mighty's was like everywhere since she had left it a few years ago. So she was interested in that. And I ended up writing like this really comprehensive literature review on Frank Mighty's and getting into it. And the first project that sort of started this whole like research program was repeating the study that was done in like 2001, 2002, looking at how uh, what like bird communities are using the reference kind of uninvasive vegetation so in those marshes it was um like the cattail marsh community and the meadow marsh community and comparing that to what's in the fragmentes so that was done in 2001 2002 and then in 2014 we were like well it's kind of just grown unchecked in these marshes let's repeat that study go back to all the same sites use the same methodology and see the difference and that was like a technician position that turned into my master's, um, which was a really fun, really fun, really like chaotic introduction to like a full field season. Like it was a full four months out. Um, I was doing bird surveys and then to try to like, because Fragmites is so tall, cattail's pretty tall, and then Meadow Marsh is pretty like short and it's hard to get a visual on like birds. It's hard to get a visual on birds out there to begin with. But to try to standardize it, we were using a six foot ladder. So all of my, like those first, I did two field seasons, 2014, 2015. And it would be like, I would ride my, like in 2014, I would ride my bike out at like three o'clock in the morning, change into my waders that I had kept on my bike, go and unlock the ladder that I had locked to like a secret tree in the marsh. And then like walk to all of my sites carrying a ladder. Like, so it was like walking yeah, through Frank. <laughs> It was like walking through Frag, like carrying a ladder. Um, and you know what? At first I was like, oh, it sounds brutal. But I was like, I love this ladder. By the end of that field season, I was so bonded to that ladder. Because like, you know, when you fall into like muck, like pretty deep, 
mm-hmm. having a ladder there as a leverage is very helpful. Yes. Um, I have the so, same relationship with a piece of PVC. I understand. Right? <laughs> Love those inanimate objects that yes. you spend so much time with. Yeah. It, it is mine so, and it has my name on it and nobody better touch it. <laughs> like every day I go find the ladder and it's just covered in spiders. I'm like, all right, guys, let's go. Um, yeah. So it would be like, so I did that for like two years, like two field seasons. That was my master's. And then in 20 like the end of 2015, early 2016, um, they actually, the provincial government in partnership with like Ducks Unlimited Canada um, and a couple other like Nature Conservancy of Canada. So a couple other like environmental NGOs, they actually started um, a Phragmites control project out in those marshes. And right around when I was getting the results from my masters, I noticed that aerial insectivore birds, like um, swallows, like barn swallow, um, all the ones out there, they seem to be foraging less often over Phragmites habitat, which I was like, this is really weird. There's not really like, there's not like a really obvious explanation for why they might be foraging, like, or just have lower like counts over Phragmites. Um, So that turned into like, like, you know, more questions. And then they started this control project right when I was sort of getting to the end of my master's. And we were like, well, now I have more questions I want to answer. I kind of want to roll up, but I was, I was too far in to roll up. So I defended my master's and then it turned into my PhD, which was like, um, it was actually a really cool opportunity to get to develop a couple of questions I was interested in. And I got to co-author some research grants to get extra funding to like take it in a different direction. So my PhD turned into comparing like unevaded like basically looking at a whole bunch of different um like biological communities and how they differed between like reference unevaded vegetation invaded phragmites and then also where they had treated with a herbicide like one and two years after so my phd turned into looking at like plants and macroinvertebrates and macroinvertebrates and um like aerial insectivore birds so kind of looking at like how do the plants change? How do the plants change the like the bugs for less, that use it? And then how do the bugs maybe change the way that like birds that use them as a prey item use these different habitats? Um, and I got involved in a lot of kind of cool side projects too, like monitoring the herbicide in the marsh and like working more closely with like the provincial and federal government. Um, and like, yeah, feel free to jump in whenever, but it's like, I think more common in the States to actually apply. So it was a glyphosate based herbicide and it's pretty common in the States to like be able to apply that over water. I think you guys have a registered project product. Um, But in Canada, we actually didn't have anything registered to use over water. So this project required like an emergency use registration for a couple of years in a row. And like all of this extensive monitoring to make sure that like the benefits of controlling fray weren't outweighed by negative consequences of potentially you know contaminating these marshes so we did a whole lot of monitoring for like it's still going on um but i was involved three years of it and it was like unprecedented in canada and it was required an emergency use registration each year and it's like a custom blend of the herbicide that um is safe for over water use and it's like it, it turned into a very cool project and it was very much just like yeah, I think some people have like really clear ideas of like what they want to do with their career. And I fully am like, this seems really cool. And my like guiding ethos is I just want to do good in the world and like 
Um, so I've just kind of ended up in a lot of really cool positions by just being like, oh yeah, okay, that's really neat. I love that. Um, that's my strategy as well. I'm like, that sounds yeah. cool. I'll go do that now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We might be the same person. I don't know. Yeah. It's like a wetland ecologist. Yeah, wearing <laughs> like, gray hoodies. I know. <laughs> gray hoodies, glasses. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Okay. So that project sounds really cool. And it sounds like you did your old bird surveys by yourself, which like doing field work alone somewhere is like a whole other experience. <laughs> it really is. For that first year, I did a bunch of them on my own. The second year I had a field system with me the whole time. And like, yeah, being alone um, in the field is like, in some ways it was like, once I got used to it, very peaceful and really nice, but like it also, once I had someone with me, like, all the time, I was like, oh, yes, this is much, it feels a lot nicer to just have someone there. Yeah, just even if they do nothing, it just feels safer. Yeah. <laughs> like, 100%. if I fall and break my leg, at least somebody will know. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we had, like, a very intense, um, like, safety setup of, like, here are the sites I will be at. Here's how to get to them. Here's, like, like I lived in a field house with a bunch of folks who were doing mm-hmm. bird banding, and I'd have, like, a calendar every morning for, like, here is where I am. Here's where if I'm not back by this point, like, yeah, yeah. that's way um, better than mine when I was doing my master's field work because I did all of my master's field work solo and like just me in a four wheeler somewhere. And I left a sticky note on my desk. This was safety. I'll be back on this day. If I'm not back, you should start at the top of this list and start calling people. <laughs> it all worked up fine. But now I'm just like, I look back now and I'm like, that's insane. Why didn't I have oh someone God, I had to call every night or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, yeah. Things have changed. Yeah. in just the past couple of years. For sure. Yeah. I would never do yeah. that now. I'd be like, so, even if it was my mom, like someone come make sure I communicate yeah. with you every night from wherever I'm staying that night. <laughs> yeah. And like, um, my field work, cause it was so early, like during bird service, it would be dark out too. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, man, the thing. So one time I was, um, doing a bird survey, like on the ladder, like facing one way. And I heard like, footsteps or something weird coming up behind me like along like a path like I was in the fray like I was in a wetland I was like what the fuck and I stopped and turned around and it was a deer and the deer like stopped and I I scared that deer more than that deer scared me it just like took off it's like oh I'm sorry pal (laughs) the deer's like there's somebody on my new trail someone made for me yeah actually (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I've had many experiences early in the morning somewhere where I'm like, I scare myself with something or I scare an animal or an animal scares me. There's one particular, there was this place I worked with that I knew there was a turkey that roosted in that tree and it was always there. And I scared it every morning and every morning I'm like, okay, there's a turkey in that tree. And every morning it still scared me (laughs) (laughs) every time. Yeah. It's the one thing I really love about doing field work. Like it sounds like you had kind of the same experience of doing field work in sort of the same area, like every day for months on end is like, you just really get to know a place. And I like, honestly, it's so special. And just like, I'm really grateful for those. I like, I don't really do it as much now, but I had like a couple of years where it was like every day I lived out there and went out to the, like the wetland. And I was just like, like, yeah, you're like, I know this turkey's here and I know this bird's here. And I just like, I'm going to pass this shrub and see this, like, you just really, it's just really lovely and like if you only get to go sort of like birding on a weekend you don't get the same experience of like kind of really knowing everything that lives there and getting to like it like I really am 
I guess just like gush about it but it's like such a like you know like it's such a special experience to be like uh yeah it really is that's one of my favorite things about my job actually is because I go to the same permanent monitoring stations you know I don't go every week or every month necessarily but I'm going multiple times a year and now over like 10 or 11 years and so I get to like I go there enough. Most people don't go to these areas, you know? So like I get to see these like really remote areas regularly and yeah, just feel very connected to it. I totally am with you. It's cool to see the same place and like go regularly and like really get to know it. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. So I have questions about Phragmites. So so Mm -hmm. here, um, Phragmites is in fresh areas, but like in particular, the Mississippi River Delta is a lot of Phragmites. Like there's other things out there, but it's mostly Phrag. And it's super fresh, right? Because it's the Mississippi River outflow. And, but I feel like that's one of the things holding our coast together because it like, it's really resilient to like hurricanes because it's so tall. Um, It just sort of like, yeah, it makes these like really solid stands, but then it's also not native. (laughs) So it's yeah. like a love-hate relationship. Like, okay, we need it because it's keeping things together and we don't have a native species that does the same thing it's doing. Or maybe we do, but we don't anymore. Have, I don't know. Yeah, maybe- I was going to ask, do you know what was there before the frag sort of I don't know. displaced it? I don't yeah. know. I mean, there is certainly like a lot of typha, which cattails down there as well, mixed in. And, you know, we get a lot of like, a lot of times in the frag stands, it's like Spartina patens mixed in with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they really don't get like a variety of species. It's really just like this mono stand of Phragmites. And I would have to do some digging to see what was down in the Delta before. Or there seems to be some debate if there was a native species that got pushed out by the non-native species. But I don't know that anybody's figured that out just yet. Um, yeah. So... I feel like you've asked a question that's like pretty philosophical in terms of like invasion science and ecology and just dealing with like, you know, the world and all the different like pressures that are existing right now. So I guess in terms of Frank, Frank is actually pretty saline tolerant. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of why it has like, part of why Frank is so hard to control and such a successful evader is it has just so like, a variety of tolerances like it has a very wide tolerance like from freshwater to fairly saline um like here you'll notice here probably the same where you are is it's often in roadside ditches or like next to roads where it's like it can handle like all of the road salt like we use a lot of road salt here so typically those things are very saline and it kind of thrives there where other species don't thrive because of like we've added this additional pressure of salinity I guess like what you're saying is the issue is like we have this invasive species because of human connectivity and like we've introduced this invasive species right and then that invasive species is thriving in an area where there's increased disturbance there's like a lot of nutrient effluent I'm assuming right Mm -hmm. like there's an increase in like that's the problem we have too around Lake Erie is like there's a lot of Mm -hmm. additional nutrients that allows Frank to thrive there's been a couple there were a couple cool papers that I'll see if I can send you it maybe after if folks are interested about threshold modeling in Lake Erie and like it was once you got to a certain level of like nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus it was just it switches to like being a pretty frag dominated vegetation mm-hmm. community um 
and like disturbance, like water level fluctuations, that also allows frag to thrive because it can handle like different levels of uh, water depths. It can also stay in the seed bank for a very long time, but it also is a really, really tremendous like clonal, like clonal asexual reproduction. It's great at that. Yeah. And the thing that's nuts that I've read from folks who've like gone more below ground, like I've tried to look at below ground biomass with frag, and it's just such a horrible tangle of like you can't yes. separate it. Yeah, but it's like apparently as much biomass as you see above ground is there's just as much below ground, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is sort of like hard to like reconcile with. Yeah. But I guess all of that to say is your question is like, so we have this invasive species that is like doing an important ecosystem service of holding together a system. And there's a lot of things you'd have to change at a fundamental level to get us maybe back to like a native community right Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be enough to just like it's not enough to just go in and treat that population with a herbicide and hope that native species colonize it and are able to outcompete that really successful invasive species because you have all that nutrient addition, you have all those changes, those disturbances going on here. And also it's like, how important is that ecosystem service in a changing world where we will have more extreme weather events because of climate change? Um, yeah. And where we will maybe need like, uh, um, like the carbon stocks potentially that it was mm. there. Like it's, it's a hard question and I, yeah. It's yeah. a hard question where it's like, just because something's an invasive species, does that mean we should always attempt to fully eradicate it? And you're like, in a perfect world, it was that simple. Yeah, maybe, but it, it's very hard. And you have to think of the whole thing, like the whole system altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's you yeah. laid it out perfectly. That's exactly what it is. And honestly, in the case of South Louisiana, I don't think it's even possible to get rid of it, even if you wanted to. Like, I don't even think that's possible. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's like the entire Delta of the Mississippi river is primarily Phragmites. And I, I mean, and that's keeping it together. So I don't know. Yeah. I think the pros outweigh the cons, but it's just so tricky. And I just find it so interesting. And it's, it's hard, it's hard to have a conversation about that specifically because most people are just like, well, it's just, it's frag, whatever. Like, but but it's all these other things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I can't speak to like, like, the Mississippi Delta like sure. I work in a very specific place right and I can kind of only really talk to like the lessons I've learned in the land that I work on don't yeah. necessarily translate to everywhere else sure. um, but that's absolutely a thing that we contend with also which is like okay we're controlling frag but eradication at this point is probably not the goal right mm-hmm. it's it's everywhere and even if so working on a peninsula is like I guess you don't have as much like connection to other land necessarily, but it is like you're in a watershed where there's a lot of frag and you're working on little bundles of land because there's so many different, like um, people own different pieces of land on the peninsula, right? So maybe you can only get like the provincial, like provincially owned property this year and the next year we'll go federal and then we'll have to also get like private landowners in and you have to sort of think of it like holistically of like, okay, so where are all the sources of property yields coming from? And it's been here for, decades and we don't know how long it stays in the seed bank we don't know how long like rhizomes that may allow it to like reproduce are viable for they might also be coming they're probably also coming from like the mainland right like Mm -hmm. washington here and so it's like 
and then you have all the other things we talked about like nutrient addition and um so it's like yeah eradication is probably not a realistic goal like we're not going to go back to like there's none of the species like that's why early detection and rapid response for invasive species is so like um pushed as like a primary approach because if you can catch it early you can eradicate it but when you frag is that like spread like such a high level of spread it's too late but (laughs) it's sort of like i mean it's too late to eradicate it yeah but it doesn't mean it's too late to like manage it in a way that is still beneficial Mm -hmm. so in the cool thing about so from our work that we found was like so in 2001 2002 when there wasn't a lot of frag so it was sort of small patches and it was still really interspersed with the resident communities like it didn't have those really dense monocultures yet there was still like a gradient kind of going into the um like the center of the patch if that makes sense yeah and they actually found that that was kind of beneficial for bird communities so a lot of wetland birds and like terrestrial birds were using that interface where there was a little bit more like structural heterogeneity mm-hmm. between like the meadow marsh and like where there's a little bit of frank like it was actually it didn't seem to have a negative effect on the bird communities and then when we went back and studied it in like 2014 2015 the stands were so dense and like it was just like as soon as you get into the sand it's like a wall of frag right very dense there yeah. wasn't a benefit of the edge anymore there wasn't like a gradient and it was the wetland birds of conservation concern so birds that are like in decline around the Great Lakes, like rails, for example, um, they weren't using Phragmites habitat. And it was a lot of more like generalist species, like red winged blackbirds, mm-hmm. um, swamp sparrow species mm-hmm. like that, that were sort of like, yeah, thriving everywhere. And they were, they were using that habitat. So it's not that like the Frag was, we always say, it's not that the Frag was like an ecological desert, but it was a more impoverished bird community. But when we put those two pieces of evidence together of like 2001, 2002, and then like 2014, 2015, the early stages and the late stages of invasion, it gives you a little bit of hope and guidance in terms of controlling it, right? If we can control it and get it back down to like really low population levels, we see that ecologically the effects are like less. It does mean you have to stay on top of it because it will grow so quickly back to those monocultures in a few years. But it does give you like a little bit of guidance of, okay, eradication is probably not possible, but controlling it down to like lower population levels will actually likely have a marked positive effect for like our native species. So that's hopeful. And that is like, again, just very specific to where I work, you'd have to, and like the luck of having someone who went out early in the invasions to study that, Mm -hmm. but it is like interesting. And I think it gives us like a, it gives us like a more hopeful path forward that isn't just like, oh, eradication is not possible. So let's give up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 I don't know that. Well, I don't know. I literally don't know if anybody's doing herbicide <laughs> work for like controlling Phragmites, but they do. So wetlands here at least do periodically burn. Like that's very normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the like refuges, like the national wildlife refuges here that have frag will periodically burn them. Um, if they don't burn on their own, cause some of them will naturally burn, um, but they'll burn it and they'll, you know, knock it back and set back succession for a couple of years and burn it again in a couple of years. And that mm-hmm. seems to be doing a pretty good job. I mean, it comes back real quick. I don't know how it grows that best, but you know. I know it's cause it's a grass. So it just like, it's, it's yeah. such a hard species to work with. It's yeah. just like, 
disturbance hell yeah (laughs) yeah when then we also get hurricanes which just like physically knocks it all over (laughs) so you know yeah and then the problem so the problem i guess with frag is like i don't know if you've seen this but if you if you knock over a stand that's still like living or viable that stand like that sorry that stem that's been knocked over just turns into a stolen which is essentially a horizontal like root and it just starts shooting up new stems along each node it's truly like bonkers yes yes yeah i didn't know what that was called but yeah it totally does do that (laughs) yeah you've got the the rhizomes which are essentially the underground like Mm -hmm. underground stems is the easiest way to think of them and then you've got stolons which are like those ones that run over and expand the stand like running over like bare ground kind Mm -hmm. of and um we had found a whole bunch of stolons and we like marked them and measured them over a field season and they were growing like 10 to 15 centimeters in like a week whoa maybe like they were monstrous they were so fast yeah this species is like a superhero but not necessarily in the way you want it to be (laughs) it's truly designed to be like an unstoppable (laughs) like not unstoppable but like it's got a lot of characteristics where you're just like oh my god like oh you're gonna knock me over i got this (laughs) yeah Yeah. um in the Um, states Oh, I don't know if you like want to share resources at the end, but Laura Meyerson and Karen Kettering are two really great Frank Mindy's researchers in, out of the States who probably are doing a lot of work um, that would be more relevant, like that could inform like Mississippi management stuff. I can send you there. That's cool. Yeah, I'll look that up. Yeah. Yeah, or send it to me. Awesome. Yeah, it's not what I do is more of a like big picture wetlands monitoring of the entire coast so I'm not working with this species specifically and I'm doing monitoring while other people are doing like specific research or restoration projects and like all the monitoring data informs all of that stuff mm-hmm. um so yeah I don't do any like specific species type stuff so there there's probably things going on that I just don't know about too so oh 100 percent I mean it's yeah. um overwhelming to keep up with the amount of work going on all over all the time so I have a question that's not necessarily related to Phragmites but I'm curious Mm -hmm. how you ended up in this field because it I mean you know like how you know you picked something to major in an undergrad and I'm just curious how you got there because we know how we got how we got there from there to you know a six foot ladder standing in the Phragmites scaring deer (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious like what led you to this in the first place yeah um so I think I'm trying to think back because I again I don't I'm not like a person who had like a solid like five-year plan this is what I want to do but yeah (laughs) I I don't know that many people who do but I'm always impressed when I run across them um so I guess like growing up I was really really outdoorsy like real but everyone in my family was like called me like a tomboy and stuff and I was always out like catching frogs and like I really cared about being outdoors and like my first I remember my first um oh my god science fair as like an undergrad was like I went out and collected water from a creek near our house and like did an acid test on it and I thought it was about acid rain I don't know I like measured the pH in the water and I thought I was doing something about acid rain so I always kind of cared but actually and this is sort of like I don't know if this is cheesy or like weird but I so when I got into high school I was really into um I really love writing. I want. I thought I was going to be like an art director or like I was kind of like into theater, but I like making sets and stuff like that. And I really like 
writing. And then, um, and I guess growing up, I kind of always knew a little bit about like climate change in the back of my head. Like I remember being really scared of like the hole in the ozone layer growing up. Um, and in high school, at one point we had a whole assembly about climate change that was based on the um, Inconvenient Truth. Hmm. Like the, yeah, yeah. And they sort of like broke it down for us and talked about it. And like they showed the the graphs and everything of like increasing CO2. And um, I remember thinking, like I always had the interest, but I remember thinking like, if I do anything else in my life, it'll feel like I'm ignoring the biggest problem facing humanity. Mm-hmm. It was just such a like, you know, when you're like 17 and trying to find meaning, because everyone's like, what do you want to do with your life? And I was just yeah. like, shit, how could I like, like, I love these other things, but it would just feel like I wasn't like, I feel this existential dread and also this like need to do something about it so I was like well I gotta do something about it mm-hmm. so I applied to I went to university right out of like high school because I didn't know what else to do mm-hmm. and I applied to two English programs and I applied to the University of Waterloo which had an environment and resource studies program and they were one of the only universities at the time that had like you could get a bachelor in environmental studies and I got into all of them and I was like okay I'm gonna go to Waterloo and do this and um I think I actually chose that one because it didn't require a lot of like math background because at that point in high school I was very much like I'm going English track I don't need to like I remember the last year like scrambling to get like all my science credits and everything like all scrambled together to actually be eligible for these um university things so and then I went to university and then had like you know I don't think that like stayed with me and I had a lot more like crises of like what do I want to do what do I like and then I ended up um double majoring in biology because I wanted a little bit more of like the hard science aspect of it and then yeah and then when I was close to being finished I took a little bit of extra time like to finish my undergrad and I reached out to Rebecca um but grad school I had I don't know if you had this experience or if other folks did but I had uh totally the feeling of like all throughout my education that I was like never smart or good enough to do like math or science or like that it was too hard. It wasn't for me that I couldn't do it, which was like, it totally um, shaped a lot of the choices I made around like high school and university and stuff. And it was only in grad school where I started being like, oh no, I can do these like quote unquote hard things. Like they're actually really helpful for like the goal of what I want. And yeah, anyways, that that's how I, I got to where I am kind of and I'm still struggling a lot with or like not struggling but I still you know how I mentioned before we were kind of saying how we just like do cool projects that like focus on like an ethos that we have I'm still just like okay what can I do that has like the best net positive mm-hmm. while I'm here on earth but yes. still just like yeah so I am now doing a, a postdoc at Carleton University with Joe Bennett um, and working alongside like Nature Conservancy of Canada. And um, I feel like I've gotten really lucky with a lot of colleagues who have the exact same kind of approach and they're really lovely. And I'm focusing now a little bit more on like wetland restoration mm-hmm. and restoration and conservation at like um, at more of like the Canadian level. So working with like, like data, like a little less field work, but um, so it feels like it's working out so far for me. And I'm like very happy with where I've landed in the past few like yeah 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 that's awesome I love to hear everybody's like origin story basically yeah. <laughs> um, 
Because it's always so different. And some people are very like, I knew what I wanted to do from age five or whatever. Yeah. And some people are like me and you who are like, well, I like being outside and I just find something that goes with that. And yeah. That's how it happened like- for me too. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I also, what you said about like doing something for, you know, the greater good and like sort of, you know, bigger than myself or yourself. It's a, that's why I do what I do because I I feel like, cause I'm from Louisiana and I know the coast and like, I have all these connections and I have this like knowledge and skills I can use to like help save the coast and like Mac, you know, like, I feel like that, like, that's what I need to do with myself to like have a have a good impact and I don't know that's in the, even yeah, though I don't right. always love still being in Louisiana but <laughs> maybe that's true yeah everywhere. you know I don't know <laughs> so I know it's it's hard but you know what I think like doing the best you can in like the community and the little the space that you're in is like I don't know the, yeah it's the easiest way I find like to also kind of fight against the despair a little bit of like climate change despair and like feeling very um it's hard sometimes seeing everything, but I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to, in this community, be a human first, like a scientist second and like care and do as much good as I can. Kind of. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's how I'm getting by. <laughs> no, that's a great approach. Uh, and I also, t- I guess it's like additionally to that, like, okay, I want Louisiana to look different. Like I want it to be thinking long-term about like, what our state physically is going to look like. Like, are we going to have wetlands and are those wetlands going to nurse shrimp? You know, like these, all these things and like, well, nobody's going to fix it. So I'm here. So I should start, you know, it's, I might as well help fix it instead of just wish it was like that, I guess. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Like even if it's not perfect, get started. Yeah, yeah exactly. Started exactly. See some changes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're doing a postdoc. What do you, I, am. I know you're not a five-year plan person because neither am I, but uh, <laughs> what do you envision yourself maybe doing? And it doesn't even have to end up being this, you know, are you interested in academia? Are you interested in working for an NGO? Cause I know a lot of, you know, research scientists work in that space as well. So I'm just curious where you see yourself maybe going. Oh, you know what people anywhere. Uh, <laughs> uh, I get asked this and also by like my new coworkers, they're very much like, what do you want to do so we can help you develop the skill sets to get there? And I am again, like, I don't know, which is like, I know such a terrible answer, but I'm like, it's not because I'm the same. So the way that I'm approaching right now is I don't want to close any doors, but I also like, I want opportunities where I'm like, okay, this will be like, still make me feel good at the end of the day. Like I'm doing something good. If, if like, um resources were no option and I was like a billionaire what I would probably want to do is start like my own nonprofit where I could do like sort of some science that I want to do um have like a little sidecom like mm-hmm. po- like loft to get people interested and like probably have it like I think going forward the thing that is probably going to be really important for the world is like getting folks like bringing out everyone's sort of I think everyone has an intrinsic love of nature even if it's socialized out of a lot of folks Mm -hmm. um so it's like bringing people a little more like connected in a way where it's like offering things for like students and like kids Mm -hmm. in the city and just like citizen science stuff I haven't really thought it out but I'm like if if money were no option I would love to be 
my own boss in a way because I also sometimes think like institutions are I don't know if I should say this in a recording but I don't think that institutions aren't necessarily often radical enough for the changes that we're facing yeah. in this world I agree <laughs> yeah so um but also yeah. like I think, I think a- there's probably a lot of great places to actually work but I oh, that's where I'm at right now where I'm like yeah <laughs> almost certainly that's a fantastic answer I mean I'm the same I ask that question even though I'm the same way where I'm like if someone's like what do you want to do in five years have a job so I can buy dog food like I don't know yeah and do something I like and like not hate my coworkers and not hate going to work and I say going because I don't actually have an office but you know yeah so. I feel like we're in a very hard place where it's like what would I like to do in five years it's like well I'd like to not have to live paycheck to paycheck and worry about money constantly and if that weren't guiding a lot of my decisions I would really like to do something that's like actively making the world a better place Mm -hmm. and that's like I end up ending on the like actively making the world a better place and I'm also like I recognize that like maybe that means I never retire like you know (laughs) as I get older yeah um and that could look like any number of like a thousand different things, you know? So yeah, there's a lot of options there, which is cool. And then instead of making plans, I get like um, annoyed at a world that makes us choose between those things. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think that's probably why I don't have like a great answer for people is like, I'm mad that humans have to choose between like making a living and having more meaning and like focusing mm-hmm. on bigger issues. I know it feels like that is not what people exist to do but that is the reality of like the societies we live in I know which is a bummer yeah an understatement (laughs) right yeah yeah that was a massive understatement (laughs) but yeah yeah I'm with you on that one (laughs) yeah when I partially asked that question is too because some people finish you know their education and not that finish the formal education everybody keeps learning things but like for me when I finished my master's I was like well I'm done with academia I'm never coming back because <laughs> it's just like clearly not the place for me um and some people are like that even after a PhD so you know but yeah, and I, there's lots of spaces for everybody yeah and I a thousand percent understand people who finish their grad degree and they're like I do not want that and I'm never going back to that and I I think there's a lot of things about academia that are very unhealthy Mm-hmm. Um, I hold out hope that there's also a lot of like maybe new newer positions or places that actually let people thrive. Um, and I, I guess I kind of hold out that same hope about most workplaces. So yeah. I'm just like, I'm a realist, but I guess also in some ways like incurably optimistic that I'm like, I'm sure there'll be a perfect fit for all of these like competing interests to flourish in a position one day. <laughs> I, I feel like there probably will be. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the same thing about well, it's similar but smaller scale, I guess. It's like if if I want something to be different, I can either fix it or I can just bail or try to fix it and maybe not succeed. Which is how I feel about the coast too. I'm like, yes, it's not clearly not a one person job, right? This is like an every person job. But I felt like that about like work scenarios in the past. I'm like, oh, this work environment sucks. I'm like, I could just leave or we could try to fix it. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I've just left and that's been okay too. But yeah, I guess the point of that is, you know, there's a space and you'll find something that fits you. And I'm sure whatever it is, is going to be amazing. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Maybe in like five years, we can follow up and be like, so where are we now? Yeah. 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 I'll probably still be here. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fine. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well then, so it's been about an hour and I've been ending all my episodes with two like non-sciencey related questions, if you're mm-hmm. interested in that. Yeah. Okay. So the first one is, and I think I'm going to change them for 2022. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you the new question. You're going to be the first one with the new question. Ooh, okay. New question is, what are you obsessed with right now? Oh, okay. Uh, I actually, okay, so I've had an iPad for a long time, but I finally, I got an Apple Pencil in Procreate, and I've been drawing a lot, and I'm, like, actually obsessed with it. It's taking my, like, shitposting to a whole new level of, like, um, it's both been really fun to like practice like drawing again like I was really into drawing before and have time for this hobby but I've also just been like drawing like memes and stuff it's been very fun like and my friends like cats and like pets and um I've been doing a lot of that lately which is that's right now what I'm like I'd say I'm obsessed with (laughs) I love that you're the first person to ask that question too because I I've been asking people what their hobbies were and I was like yeah, the question's nice, but it's time for a new question. So I'm glad I switched because that answer was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question too. I love yeah. that. <laughs> and it could be any number of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other question is, what are you reading right now, if anything? Oh, um, okay. So I actually just finished the audiobook of Esther Perel's Mating in Captivity, which is her book about like sex and relationships. And it was really fascinating. And I recommend the audiobook because Esther's like, she's got a great style she's got a podcast too and um I just started a fiction book Firefall oh so um cool it's like sci-fi I'm it's my favorite type yeah me too I read a lot of sci-fi um I'm I'm not super far into it so I just started so I'm excited about that yeah yeah that's why I asked that question is because I read maybe more than any human should read I am always looking for new recommendations and it's also interesting to see what people are reading around the world because there's people from all over that are on here and so that's been cool um you like sci-fi you said yes have you read the memory called empire no duology okay those are the second one like just came out this year those are I think in the past like year like my my favorite sci-fi that I've read okay um they're really really good Okay, that's a solid recommendation. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll look it up. I'm sure it's amazing. Um, the book has yeah, to really know. suck for me to not like it. So, you know, yeah. I'm an easy Although- to please reader too. So Cool. Well, I hope you like it and let me know what you think of it. Yeah, I definitely will. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you too. This was really fun. Hey y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, And how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast, so you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com, or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there, and just, you know, have a good day and thank you for listening.